we started recording. Anything can happen now. All right. I have that setting on my podcast player to cut out silence to get you through podcasts quicker. It makes people talk like they're sort of like hyped up on cocaine or something. Uh, but some of the podcasts that I listen to are like, they can go on and on. Okay, I want to get to this a little bit. That's <laughs> interesting. My last guy was all, right. all about this hidden track at the end. Oh, yeah. Of, yeah, so yeah anyway, I saw that one. Yeah. That would cut out the whole show. <laughs> Boil it down to 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. In this Napping Wizard session, I talk with Nicholas Frazier about his text-based artworks. We focus on Left Hanging. It's a project that repurposes his unrequited dating app intros into ephemeral objects. Love letters like Hanging Chads cast shadows of conversations that were never properly counted. He spent a great deal of effort crafting these letters, and though they never captured their intended recipient, he found a way to utilize this archive to reach a broader audience. Nicholas's work for the past decade has focused on the slippages of language, the erasure of meaning, our human desperation to communicate, and our dizzying agility at failing at it. But sometimes we succeed, like in this conversation where we get an in-depth look at how Nicholas's projects evolve and adapt. We recorded this conversation at the Brick Podcast Studio in Brooklyn on January 11th, 2020, before COVID-19 took over our lives. If we continued this conversation today, we'd probably be making references to novels like Love in the Time of Cholera and debating the impact physical distancing has on online dating. But the love letter has survived all sorts of human calamities and Nicholas has found a way to give his value that all of us can appreciate. If we've learned anything, it's that love... Eh, no, wait a minute, let me change that. It's that unrequited love survives even in pandemics, and yet we still learn to adapt and go on. As you listen to this, I encourage you to take a look at his website, nicholasfraser.com. Nicholas Frazier. David Colosi. Welcome. Great to be here. Left Hanging. Yeah. Which you've been working on for? Just about four years. It'll be four years this summer. Left Hanging seems to have been a focus for a little while. That has been. I got lucky enough to get a subsidized studio space around 2015. And since I was paying rent on a studio, I thought, well, I need to actually use the studio to make stuff again. Most of the things I'd been doing were either video-based or ephemeral installations on the street yeah. and didn't really require an actual studio space. So once I got a studio space, I had to reinvent that practice. And left hanging was the most fruitful direction that I've come up with as far as a studio-based practice. Give us an intro. Well, it's another project that is text-based. Most of the things I've been doing for the last decade have been text-based, either using found texts or things that I collect 
In this case, these are all texts that I wrote for use on internet dating sites. They were messages that I sent to individuals that never received any kind of reply. And they were just on the website. Being the text-based artist that I am, I tend to collect and keep all those things, and I would cut and paste it into my own little document to, in case websites disappear, as sometimes they do. And when I started trying to reinvent a studio practice, I had discovered this method of making a work where I was cutting letters into Tyvek. Basically, it was just letters that had been cut into that sheet material but were left attached mm -hmm. at the bottom and then left to dangle. And I thought, well, that's an interesting physical method of making something, what what else can I do with it? And so I knew I had all these texts from unanswered messages, and I kind of thought they could be an interesting text to utilize. I think my initial idea was with the Tyvek ones to actually then shape the texts into these sculptural forms mm -hmm. using computer programs and print those directly onto this black material and then hand cut it. In playing around with that, I eventually came to this way of displaying them where they're hung away from the wall, maybe 10 or 12 inches, and then a spotlight is shown on them so that the object projects a shadow on the wall behind it, which often is actually more readable, more legible. Like if you were to stand in front of it and were trying to read what the text said, you would maybe have a hard time with some of the strange distortions that the stretching of the texts brings to it, whereas the shadow becomes more legible, which is something I like to play with in a lot of my works is legibility. Sometimes it's momentary. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be affected by things that are going to change it, people walking on it, birds eating it, or weather destroying it over time. But in this case, because it's not a piece that's going to decay, that issue of legibility becomes a fun thing to play with. Mm -hmm. And then at about the same time that I was developing the Tyvek method, I also had been collecting banners that were advertisements from mostly in Brooklyn and Queens for rap and reggae and Bollywood shows. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just sort of was fascinated by the way they're densely designed. Like they'll have an event that has 20 artists and every artist's picture is on there and mm -hmm. every artist's name is on there. <laughs> right. Every color. Every color, yeah. And you found these? Like people threw them out or you pulled them off? I think I started by waiting until if it was a specific event, I would wait until the event was over and I'd pull it off the fence, you know, take a pair the of... The date had passed. The date <laughs> had passed. And then as I started getting into that habit and I knew of five or six places that I saw these things pop up... They'll get taken down by the Department of Sanitation if they're left there, or they just fall off the fence. But I learned that if you see one that you really like, take it. Don't even wait for the right. date because <laughs> the Department of Sanitation is going to come and strip it out. They basically treat it as litter. But I was fascinated by them, and I have a few hundred of them collected. And I thought, you know, these banners have absolutely nothing to do with Internet dating, right? let alone the specifics of what I talk about in those messages but they were sort of interesting things, and I thought, I don't know if this will work. It was sort of an experiment, and so I started doing the same thing that I was doing with the black Tyvek sheets, cutting the texts onto those banners. Now, I did a little differently in that I didn't shape or stretch or, or alter the text. I just tended to do it in very dense blocks that sort of cover the entire surface as a screen. Uh -huh. Now, in both of them, I do alter the text. I remove all the punctuation, uh -huh. which makes it a little more difficult to read it. But the same sort of display method is used. They're hung away from the wall. Light is projected through it. But because you have this image with both imagery as well mm -hmm. as text there, you're competing with another. And it's an interesting thing to see what is essentially two advertisements layered on top of mm -hmm. each other, canceling each other out. 
the way I sort of think about it is one's a document of this vitality of the city. The other one is this document of one individual's attempt to reach out to another individual that didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then when they merge, they sort of change each other in this kind of strange way. I'm still not 100% certain if they work or if they do what I think they do. Yeah. So. And I guess that's sort of the fun of making art in a lot of ways. It's you have one idea and then you have another idea to kind of combine it. And you don't really know why yeah. you're putting the two together, but it's just like, well, let's try it. That's sort of how I tend to work on most projects. I'll come up with an idea and then some variation of it will occur to me and I'll take it there. And then usually it's that third iteration that becomes mm-hmm. like the best one. And so you sort of have to allow it to go in that direction. Yeah. What is love? So let's talk a little bit about the content of Left Hanging. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are these intros that you wrote to women as a first pay. I read your profile. Looks interesting. Mm -hmm. But then they didn't work. And, I mean, the Left Hanging, it seems like there's a few meanings there. One is you sent this message and you didn't hear any response at all. So that was Left Hanging. Sure. And I mean, I guess with dating apps, you swipe right to accept and left to pass. Well, most of these were actually written, I think, before the swiping left or right as a way to do it. In a way, I kind of wonder if these texts will end up being this document of a particular period for dating apps that we might have already moved past in some (laughs) ways. And the one other thing that's particular about the messages that I sent is these are way longer a message than I ever get. You know, I'll meet people who have been on these sites and they'll say, I never get messages this long. I get messages that say, hey, babe, or something lewd or something rude. And these are, and I'll be the first to admit it, very long-winded, meandering messages. Uh Uh, I'll get into some mood and I'll be responding to this profile and whatever that individual has written and I'll just keep writing. The longest one is about 800 words, which is just preposterous. (laughs) Yeah, it's ridiculous. (laughs) And I look back at some of the things that those messages say. And I'm like, oh, no wonder that person didn't write back. This right. comes across as crazy um, <laughs> or like mm, too much information or, you know, so many reasons why right. you can imagine why these things would be not replied to. I wrote Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the whole balance between the really long one versus the short one. But then, you know. As writers, we're like, well, let's actually say something thoughtful based on their profile. I tended to be prone to respond to a profile where that person also kind of let it go. Didn't try to make it short and sweet. Didn't try to restrain themselves and just sort of like put it all out there. I mean, for one thing, they gave you more to respond to. Right. That was always my inclination was to make it clear that you've read their profile. Because if you do enough Internet dating, you eventually will come across people who will complain about internet dating in the profile. (laughs) And there's always a PSA. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You run into people who make these conceptual profiles that complains about the mechanics of internet dating. Yeah. I mean, and even in some of my messages, if I'm not complaining about it, I'm at least bringing up this consciousness of the artificiality of creating a projection of myself that's a response to the projection you've created of yourself. And that ends up being repeated. But there is like a self-consciousness. I think the more you do internet dating of the weird conventions of it. And that kind of seeps into some of the things you see written in profiles as well as what you see written to start a conversation. I mean, the minute you meet somebody face-to-face, all of that written stuff just drops yeah, away. Like all those rules else. of yeah. like, I need this, I need this, I need this, you need to be this, you need to be this. Yeah, becomes about face-to-face interactions, like normal relations. Yeah, there's something really artificial about it. With your profile, you're allowed to dream to the extreme and like, 
create this portrait of the person you want to meet yeah. that is so extreme that it just seems unapproachable. Yeah, I've seen some ones that fit in the uh, diatribe framework. I'm like, okay, you're, you're, you just want to go off and, and, and have a platform. That's great. Don't be surprised if not many people will respond right. in a positive way to that. But then there's always one, you know, and I guess sure. that's the point. Yeah, <laughs> something for everybody out there, I right. suppose. I mean, in the same way that you put it out there, when someone else did that to you, you were like, okay, here's a like sensibility or someone who's allowing themselves to open up. So that was something that became another category that you went with. Yeah. I've had people ask me, what about the messages that people did respond to? I'm like, well, I, I don't use those for this project. Those become a conversation of some kind, whether or not they actually lead to meeting any individual or a friendship or a relationship. Those, you know, compartmentalized yeah. those kind of responses. And what I found fascinating about having this electronic drawer full of unrequited writings was that aspect of failure that's implied by it. Uh And it reminds me of the process that visual artists go through when they're applying for things. You're asked to do these impossible feats of condensation in terms of content, (laughs) like, oh, in 200 words, write all of these things. Tell us exactly what you want to do and your budget. And then you send it out there and you wait. Right. And the advantage with most applications is at least at some point you do get a rejection. Right, yeah. But in the case of these internet messages, you just never know. It just goes off into the ether and you never hear a word. Yeah. As people who submit applications all the time, on a dating site, you don't want to receive the rejection slip. Like, you know, your profile was nice, but I'm not interested. Sure. And people don't send the. I mean, some people send those, I'm sure. Yeah, I think I've probably sent, you know, if somebody sent me a nice yeah. message that was nothing I particularly wrote to them first, but they sent something nice, I will, yeah. I will sometimes respond in a positive way. Yeah. But I think at some point I accepted the notion that sometimes silence is more elegant of a response. Yeah, I think it's just become the understood way that internet dating is going to go. If you're not interested, you just don't respond. Yeah. Which seems a little less adult. It seems like an adult thing to do. It'd be like, you know, you'd sort of communicate. But then, like what you were just saying, it's like as we apply for things, we want to get a rejection to know, yes, you're not going to Spain to study chipmunk cheeks or something. Sure. <laughs> but with a dating site, it's like, you know what? I'd rather not know. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is the letters that did work, mm-hmm. they found their audience. Yeah. But the ones that didn't, didn't find their audience. So in a way, as artists, it's like, well, I have this great material that sure. I made. Yeah. So what can I do with it? Yeah. I felt like I had full right to use that, even though I had sent it to some individual. The fact that they didn't respond gave me license to use it however yeah. I saw fit. I have had interesting things happen when I've had some of these works on display. Like I had a couple in the Spring Break Art Fair. And one of the pieces that I had up, because the, the way each message starts, it, it starts with the date that the message was sent. It has the username of the individual that it was sent to, whatever the message is, and then, then I sign off with my name at the end. One of these messages that was on display was an artist who I had sort of figured out who she was mm-hmm. based upon the photos that she had on display. And I just, I think I stumbled across her somewhere on Facebook. And then at the art fair, I saw her and I thought, mm-hmm. well, wouldn't that be interesting <laughs> yeah, right. if she noticed the work and saw that it had her username? And I kind of stood near it and watched as she walked by once or twice, but she never really noticed it. Yeah. And then. A few years later, I was actually at a different reception somewhere in Brooklyn, and that same woman was there, 
and I think I'd had a few beers, and so my liquid courage was higher. And so I <laughs> saw her talking to a friend of mine, so I went up and started talking to them. And I told her that story, and yeah. she was completely indifferent to it. It was this great, like, uh-huh, okay, great. Right. Yeah, I think I Which was go so to the perfect. Bathroom. It was, like, just as indifferent as the response <laughs> to that initial message. You might think you've peeped the scene. You haven't. The real one's far too mean. The watered-down one, the one you know, was made up centuries ago. They made it sound all whack and horny. Yes, it's awful, blasted, boring. Twisted fiction, sick addiction. We'll gather our children separate lesson. I mean, the other thing that you mentioned earlier that's important to it is that when you see the work, you can't really read the message. I mean, you can try to make it out, but mm-hmm. just because the way the paper is cut and these letters are folded over, because the shape that you put the text in, and because the lighting and the shadow, mm-hmm. the point isn't, to read the message and figure out, oh, this is why she didn't respond. You've really created this other visual and physical object. Yeah, I don't encourage viewers to try to read it. I think you'll get something out of it if you read several of them. I think of them as a self-portrait because inevitably you're going to talk about whatever's going on in your life and these kind of messages. But the shaping of that form does make it harder and harder. And some of them are really distorted to the point where it's almost impossible to read the actual object. The shadow, sometimes you still can, but it still is tricky. And that shaping to me is on purpose with the idea that you're trying to fit it to what you think that person wants to hear Uh based upon what you've read in their profile. Or what will get a response. Or what will get a response. (laughs) Yeah. And I tend to keep the shapes abstract. There are times where I'll give them nicknames of what they remind me of, but I don't make those nicknames public. I just use them as a reference point for myself. I just keep them as abstractions Mm -hmm. in a way. But the issues of being able to read it are less important, especially when you're in a room full of them. I think you get this sense of like there's a lot of effort put forth here. There's just this this trying over and over Mm -hmm. and over again. And I think that kind of ties back into that notion of – Failure in that failure is an absolute essential thing for any yeah, creative person. It's not person. a negative. It's, it's not. not. And our culture is so adverse to failure. It's not something that's encouraged. It's something that you should hide for some reason. Like, no, you've got to do it because that indicates that you're at least trying. Yeah. I mean, I proudly talk about having this Gmail folder I call the rejection collection of all of those rejection slips and notices from the things that I apply to. I mean, it's in the hundreds. Yeah, yeah. Because the the more things you apply to, the more you're putting yourself out there. Yeah. That's essential for anybody who does something creative. Yeah. Here we go again. She'll break my heart again. It's so connected to this project. The little that I've used dating sites, I really thought about that too. I spent all of my time writing these applications, putting it out there and nothing coming back. But just having this collection of rejections from residencies, from exhibitions, so you actually collect them? I mean, I just put them in a folder on my Gmail, and I don't ever throw them away. But have you done anything with them in the same way as Left Hanging? I've thought about it, but what I find most interesting about those rejections is the kind of conventions that they seem to follow. I can recognize a rejection in an email by just reading the subject line. I don't even have to open it anymore. The first few words will tell you whether it's good news or bad. But even when you do open them, the language follows a certain pattern. Dear artist, if you're lucky, they might name you. Right. 
uh, thank you for applying. The minute they thank you for applying, right. you know you you're know done. It's, over. <laughs> it's done. We had over this many applications. We right. had really strong work, and while we thought your work was something, right. we did not ultimately choose it for this. Right. We encourage you to apply the next round. Thank you. Good yeah. night. You know. Yeah. Sometimes they go the extra distance and say you are a very strong candidate, and we encourage you to apply again. Yeah. And now you switch that to the dating sites, and it's like, would you want those layers <laughs> of total silence or no thank you or you were close, Yeah, <laughs> but you know, I'm dating someone else right now, and when that's over, <laughs> you I know, guess... it's like you don't want that. I've done enough internet dating where I have a lot of friends who were people I met that way. And if your ultimate end goal is to find a partner or a mate, then, yeah, I could see why having these sort of like thank you but no thank you would be annoying or right. frustrating. Right. But some of the folks that I still consider friends were people I might have dated briefly, but some of them were just people who I started a conversation with that way, met. We didn't have chemistry in that way, but discovered that we still had things in common, and so now we're friends. I don't know. I think it's helpful with those sites to remain open to not always getting that romance, but at least getting something more out of it. It's a great way right. to meet people who you have shared interests with. Yeah, it seems like when you first start it, it's like, I'm going all in. I'm going to find the one. And then it's like, well, no, I think, <laughs> I think I'll just change my strategy a little. I think it's just as problematic a way to meet people to date as pre-internet dating yeah. is. I think the one thing you can say about internet dating is it gives you a certain level of efficiency that <laughs> yeah. you wouldn't have going out to bars or going out to openings, wherever your social scene is, and meeting people face-to-face. -face. Because at least on an internet dating site, ostensibly, people who are there are single and are seeking right. Most to of date them. people. Yeah. yeah, not everybody. Some are. <laughs> Some are seeking something on the side but, right. or, or whatever Which their motivation is. There's a place is. for everybody. There is. There's there, a place yeah. for all that. But, yeah. you know, meeting people face-to-face -face at an opening or wherever you are, it's like you have no idea. Right. That isn't yeah. something that you can tell. At least on an internet dating site, people yeah. are there for that purpose. And so you're not going to be wasting a lot of energy talking to somebody right. that Who's is, married is married or, or has got a, a significant other. Already. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that these notes that you've written, they disappear, and then you bring them back. And in a way, if we can bring it into your larger work, how things disappear, they decay, or the birdseed piece is the one that maybe jumps out the most to me. Yeah, But sure. I think a lot of them have that same effect, even the baseball piece. Ground rules. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit about that kind of ephemerality or temporariness. Sure. Well, in the case of Ground Rules, that was a project I did in 2012. I got lucky enough to go to Siberia, this town called Nitsni Tagil, near the Europe-Asia border. And I was working with an arts organization in a nearby larger city that does the Ural Industrial Biennial. And they were bringing in artists from the West doing this cultural exchange thing and was given an opportunity to do something there. And in researching it, I noticed all these Soviet war memorials in this city with these large open spaces. And I kind of had this crazy thought of like, well, what if you were to do something like have a baseball game? And it was the stupidest idea that I could possibly <laughs> imagine. I'm like, why would you have a baseball game? But the more I let that sit, it, I was like, wait, that, that actually 
could be interesting because baseball is such an American sport. Taking it to someplace like Siberia might be kind of interesting. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought how it could be an interesting project. This town was a steel town, the Russian equivalent of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh It was a place famous for building tanks and train cars that saved Mother Russia during the war. And if you looked at pictures of it online, it was industrial hellscape. Yeah. All these different colors, smoke rising out of the landscape. And uh-huh. So I said, well, let's bring in a group of steel workers. And because you can't buy baseball gear in Russia, I'll bring in a bunch of gear and we'll train them how to play softball. And we'll have an exhibition game. We'll train a couple teams. And we even developed a couple team names and logos using the local industries, the Tagil tanks uh-huh. and the Nisni Tagil metallurgists and designed uniforms and T-shirts and hats. And then all of this is going to take place on an installation where the, the chalk lines that define a baseball field we're going to have texts embedded in them, Russian translations of what I call the unwritten rules of baseball, things that you don't really have to know to play the game, but you sort of learn over time. Little rules of thumb like, you know, don't make the third out at third or don't ever walk the pitcher. Uh-huh. Um, and having those texts embedded in the ground at the feet of the people playing the game. And, of course, as they play the game, those chalk texts become smeared, legibility becomes sacrificed. And because these are rules that were originally English rules that I sent over to the folks I was working with and said, can you translate these? I don't know how well they were translated. So that was ground rules. And we had a couple exhibition games on these chalk fields. The level of play was such that the scores resembled more of a football game, Uh, uh, which I think is probably not that unusual with softball, you know, in in the park kind of thing. (laughs) Something like 27 to 18. Yeah. Um, Fielding was really not their forte. But, you know, they're brand new to the game. Yeah. So these guys hadn't played before. No, at no. All. They had they were they familiar with it or? I don't think so. No, yeah. I mean I met them at the steel plants and we had one brief meeting there where I kind of described the rules of the game and then we traveled to the park where we were doing the actual event yeah. and I broke open the bags of equipment and started handing them balls and gloves and then we yeah. had a couple sample games so I could show them the process of what yeah. the game was. And maybe we had one practice game before we did the official one where we had a video crew and audio crew on hand to document it. That sounds so amazing that it was. people wouldn't know. I mean, soccer is international, and you, you wouldn't need to teach the people rules of that no. anywhere. And in my head, I was thinking baseball was maybe the same, but I guess it's really not. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of infrastructure of baseball or softball in Russia. There's a little bit. There's a few of the bigger cities that have yeah. some small leagues, yeah. but they're, they're really isolated and small. Yeah, so it's interesting that these unwritten rules that mm-hmm. you wrote, they're sort of learning the rules as they play, so they're erasing them. Yeah. They're memorizing them and erasing the document. Or maybe even way. becoming confused by them if they're translated in <laughs> right. such a way. It's like, what does that mean? <laughs> right. You don't make the third out at third, which is, you know, it's kind of an obscure rule even right. for us. I sort of viewed it as a metaphor for this notion of like when the Soviet Union collapsed and suddenly they were a capitalist country and there was all the things that happened in the 90s where all the oligarchs took all the industries and kind uh-huh. of left a lot of people behind in Russia which is why I think where they're at politically today but they were expected to play by these rules that they had no idea right about how they worked right right and um, interesting what was sort of fascinating was to watch them being handed this equipment told a few basic rules, and then just letting them go. To me, it was sort of an analogy of what happened to them on an economic level right. during the 90s. 
And the interesting thing is that they picked it up. You know, it was never pretty. Yeah. It was never major league level defense or hitting or anything like that. But there was an enthusiasm yeah. there that made up for any lack of experience with it, which I thought was sort of an interesting thing to see happen. Yeah. And with that one, is that something you wrote a proposal for and were accepted to? I think I was invited <laughs> to do a project mm-hmm. there without knowing what the project would be. And yeah. then once I'd figured out kind of a rough idea of what I wanted to do, I proposed it to the museum that I was working with in uh, Yekaterinburg, which was the bigger city we were working out of. Uh And they said, yes, we can do that. We can do that in this particular place in the city. They were great. They made the arrangements with the steel workers. They made the arrangements with the parks. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to pull any of that off without their help. Right. So that wasn't a proposal that you waited on. And <laughs> no. You know, I'm trying to create an analog to left hanging. Yeah. The ones that were accepted and the ones that were rejected in yeah, silence. That this one, was an that one got, you can do a project. And then I had yeah. to think of the project and I proposed it and it was accepted. Yeah. Whereas one like you referenced the Birdseed project, yeah. All Consuming, that was a project that I'd thought of for Socrates. And I applied variations of that project eight or nine times before I finally got a yes Mm -hmm. working with the Bronx Museum on Randall's Island. When you do the Bronx Museum's Artist in the Marketplace program, you are eligible to apply for these yearly projects that they fund for Randall's Island. And I applied and got accepted to that. And that project went through all kinds of changes in the process of applying, reapplying, reapplying. And and actually, I think it was probably a good thing because it changed quite a bit visually from the initial renderings that I was making. And by the time I actually got a yes, I had worked with it so much that the ideas were well-formed and I I knew exactly Mm -hmm. what I wanted to do, which is good because I only had about two months from the yes to where it had to be ready. And that piece, I guess I should describe it, although you can see pictures of it online, it's a variation of a city distance sign. It's one of those signs that'll point towards famous cities, usually like London or Paris or Rome, and it'll tell you how far away they are in terms mm-hmm. of miles. This one, it tells you how far away these cities are in terms of time, and all of the cities that are named are cities that I describe as dead cities, cities that don't exist anymore. But the real key change is that all the texts themselves are made up of cakes of birdseed that are displayed in these open arrow cages pointing in the direction of where that city would have been, spelling the name of that city, and then how long it's been since that city's demise. Mm -hmm. And it ranges from ancient cities like Pompeii Mm -hmm. to more recent cities like Pripyat, the city that housed Chernobyl's workers in the 80s, and had a variety of cities from every continent tried to make it representative of what we have here in New York in terms of immigrant population. But once you set those signs up, the birds then become your sort of avian collaborators. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really sure when I finally got that piece up in the air. The question I think a lot of people, it's like, well, how long is it going to take before they finish it? I was like, I I don't know. How hungry are the birds? How hungry are the birds? (laughs) What birds come? Right. I think I picked a bird seed mix that was supposed to be a general bird attractor. You created a menu, basically. Yeah, but I don't know. And um, it ended up taking about a month before uh-huh. they polished off all 16 signs, inch-thick birdseed letters. Yeah. So not an inconsequential amount of feed, right. which led to me then to have to refill it during the six-month run of it. The letters would gradually deteriorate mm-hmm. and become less and less legible and start to resemble the ground-down ruins that you see in an archaeological dig, the same way that we would dig up these cities later looking for cultural information. Yeah, I mean, that seems like this perfect example of these cities that don't exist, but then every now and then they come up as a memory. 
and then they fade again and come up as a memory and they fade again and it seems like all three of those projects deal with that kind of well let's unearth this again bring it up yeah but then let it fall apart again is there a specific connection with language for you with that with all-consuming projects I guess just with language and its temporariness, so just as a general practice for you, effort and then deterioration and effort and deterioration. Two things I usually will mention in terms of what the kind of work that I do are is I think human beings have this sort of compulsion to communicate, whether that's written signs, whether that's messages we send to people, whatever form that takes. But also in addition to having that compulsion, we're also terrible at making it clear what we're trying to say. Right. And inevitably, there's misunderstandings. We don't get the message across very clearly, very consistently. But I sort of love that gap between what's intended and what's received. Then you add the element of time and how that message is going to change depending upon what period of time you're in. I mean, like these weird dating site messages. How are those going to be viewed 10 years from now when nobody sends messages that way or dating sites have changed to something else completely? Mm. They'll become this weird anachronism of a particular time and they'll communicate even less well what they were trying to communicate and yeah. did a poor job of yeah. originally. <laughs> well, so. it's kind of like love letters. You yeah. read love letters from the 1800s and they're so different. There's still like a certain charm and nostalgic to it, but yeah. you're like, yeah, if I received that letter today, <laughs> it would be weird. It's like, why are you writing me? But it would almost be like, I got to meet this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I'm near you, I just run out of things to say. I know you'd understand. And every time I try to tell you, the words just came out wrong. I mean, I've done a number of projects where that notion of ephemerality was central to it. A number of installations that I did used that same process that I used for the Softball Russia project where it was chalk or ash on the ground right underneath where people are walking either on a city street or in an exhibition space where you were forced to walk upon this message in order to get to the main exhibition Mm -hmm. space. That was a show at Flux Factory, the self-destructing art show. And over the course of the exhibition, all the works were expected to decay or Uh self-destruct or be gone. And the exhibition space was at the back of this long hallway that you entered from the street, kind of a low-ceilinged walkway, very narrow. And I filled that walkway with text that there was no way to not walk on it right. and still get <laughs> in the space. Yeah. And the text was a found passage from a novelist named Jim Crace's book called Being Dead. Mm-hmm. And Being Dead describes the murder of these two scientists who are murdered on the beach where they go, where they first made love as youth, and they go back there as much older people. And they're trying to do the same. And while they're trying to have sex on the beach, somebody kills them. And then their bodies lie there for a week before they're found. And the book goes into great detail describing what happens to their bodies while they lie there, the creatures that find them. And the passage that I reproduced was one of those passages that describes the the creatures that come and discover their bodies and start to take them apart. Uh And this is all rendered in multicolored layers of chalk that you have to walk on. And before, I think, the first hour of the reception, that text was was gone. gone. (laughs) It was just destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So in that story, they were trying to recreate something from 40 years ago. Yeah. And it ended in their demise. But Mm -hmm. then the story takes on a life of its own. And I'm connecting that back to Left Hanging. It's Mm -hmm. like, 
you're revisiting something that was fun and exciting at the moment. It didn't work, but no, there's still a way to give this life. And I've discovered that a few ways with things that I have either written myself or found text. I mean, being text-based, I'm always collecting things. I'm constantly keeping some sort of ongoing collection of texts because you just never know what you're going to do with it. I did one set of sculptural drawings where I would firebrand texts onto pieces of firewood. I'd been collecting subject lines from spam for a number of years, not knowing what I was going to do with them. Right. And uh, I had some residency which had an outdoor space that I could make a lot of smoke. And so I firebranded about 50 of these chunks of firewood with these odd messages. And I would carefully select them because I, if you call them the right way, I found there was this weird double entendres that would be there. Or they're often either written by bots or they're written by people whose English isn't their first language. Uh-huh. They're not quite saying what they're trying to say. You know, They're trying to get you to buy erectile dysfunction drugs right. or, or a luxury watch. Right. And if you take the phrase literally like the image of your watch will be forever in her eyes or the pain can be stopped immediately now, these sort of weird <laughs> phrases that to me seem to say something more about mortality and consumerism and things like that, that now, of course, everybody still gets spam, but it's all put away into your spam filter. Yeah. Nobody probably even looks at it. Yeah. And when I do open that folder, I realize that the age of interesting spam <laughs> subject so lines has passed. Those kind of things aren't there anymore. Yeah. It's, it's like, like, David, hot girls want to yeah, call you now. Yeah, the spam age, it's shifted. It's like, huh, yeah. interesting. I mean, in a way, spam is doing the same thing that your intro messages on a dating site are doing. They're trying to incite a response from you. Yeah. If it's panic, you know, I have pictures of you masturbating. <laughs> They're trying to incite you to act. Yeah. I mean, with the dating site, it's very different because you're reading someone's profile and you're trying to make a connection and you're trying to present a little bit of yourself, but also how you're understanding and attracted to someone else. Yeah. And I even describe that on things that I've written about left hanging, how you're basically merging two forms of advertising. Yeah. To these carefully crafted projections that are intent on moving an audience to act in some way. Um, But by overlapping them, they change each other. One is this private message that was intended for one person, and it makes it super large and wallows and revels in its own idiocy and the fact that it's failed. While the other one, this banner advertisement, is an artifact of that particular moment in contemporary culture in the city. And both of those advertisements are done. They've sort of served their purpose. One maybe might have brought somebody to whatever that event was. The other one obviously just failed completely. We don't even right. know if the individual read it. Right. He wasn't quite sure what to do and what to say. At the beginning, you said there was something you were going to read. I, I thought since even if you go to the website nicholasfraser.com and look at the images of the work, it's still difficult to actually try to read the texts. Uh-huh. And I don't necessarily think one needs to read the texts in order to appreciate the project, Mm -hmm. but it certainly can add an interesting layer to it. So I was thinking I could read one or two that's not terribly long. The, the, The most important thing is the first thing you say. This one's kind of funny. June 11th, 2012, the username was Solutella. An immediate digression, I like your username. Sounds like a tasty herb or spice that makes tacos or pasta sauce over the top good. I could Google it, but would prefer you tell me what it means. A weird beginning, but writing these messages is only slightly less weird difficult than writing about yourself. 
I grew up in the South and I'm curious to hear about your take on the region. I love the South, both the landscape and the people. The backwardness of the politics drives me crazy, but the place does get in your blood. I also spend too much time writing grant proposal stuff. It bears a resemblance to writing things for dating sites, only you have to describe your process, your plans, your worldview, and your favorite updeck story in 200 words or less. Such frugality does make one focus on the essentials, which is useful, and the stitches on your finger, exacto accident? Do designers even use exactos anymore? Anyway, suffice to say, I found your profile engaging enough to reach out. I would love to learn more and have a conversation and see where things go. Nicholas. No time for this nonsense. Yeah. I mean, that perfectly characterizes when you're writing one of these intros, at least, you know, the way I had done it, too, was you're taking like five or six things from their profile and Mm -hmm. you're putting them all together. Yeah. So it's kind of a series of very quick non sequiturs that you've woven together in such a way. Here's a quick snapshot of my impression of your profile, how I responded to it. And what do you think? Yeah. And then it's an interesting culture to to kind of immerse yourself into because I've certainly had messages from people where all they do is they say, hey, I liked your profile. And then what you do, of course, is you go and you look at theirs and maybe you like theirs or maybe you don't. And maybe that leads you to respond or maybe you don't based upon what you see. And it's like, but they didn't do any of what you're describing. And but sometimes that can be just as valid a way to start a conversation. It just shows that you're interested being the overly verbose individual that I just am by nature, I always try to do exactly the, the kind of thing you're describing and show that I've been paying attention to what you wrote. Because right. I assume you wrote it for a reason and it's there and I'm responding and look, I'm a thoughtful, yeah. caring individual. Right. Right. Like you said, you want it. Yeah, exactly. Hello. What do you want? I, 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 I feel I might lay an egg any moment. Now, comparing the ones that people did respond to, did Mm -hmm. you notice any characteristics that were different or you wrote the same kind of thing? It's just some people responded, some people didn't. No, I don't think there's any. I mean, there might be one or two messages that I can go back and read. Now it's like, oh, you sound like crazy town there. That's why (laughs) this person (laughs) probably didn't respond. Right. But no, the messages that received response, probably no real difference in right. terms of how I approached it. It's just, you know, those things can be timing. Yeah. That person might not even be using that profile anymore, and you're just wasting your time, but you don't know. Yeah, so. they could be involved in a relationship, but sure. not even looking. Or... or they just don't like the looks of you. Right, <laughs> yeah. You say something I mean, that doesn't appeal to them somewhere in your profile. Like, nah, I don't really like somebody that does X, Y, or Z. Yeah, I mean, the whole swipe culture thing is basically give me a reason to say no. Yeah. Just because there's so many... Until you get frustrated and you're like, why am I doing this? Why am I spending my time doing this? Yeah, it can be a real time suck. I mean, in a way, there is a connection to poetry. There's like an open letter where Mm -hmm. everyone's supposed to understand all the details and the context. Yeah. There's this kind of letter, which is an intimate letter to one person based on very specific things of their profile that none of your readers have access to. Yeah. And sometimes a lot of poetry is, you know, someone has this idea, they get this impression from something, they write a poem about the impression, but you're kind of lost on the context. Sure. For anyone else but that specific recipient. Some of it won't make any sense yeah, at all. But yeah. that kind of makes it this really interesting poetry because you know the intention behind the words. Mm-hmm. You don't know the specifics, but you can still feel the drive. Yeah. Do you consider these as poems in a way? Um, I don't ever really consider myself a 
poet, even though yeah. I work with text and with my own texts at times. I'm more interested in these as archives of a particular moment, documents that show a particular mindset and what was going on then, and a kind of way to show how plugging away at stuff about persistence, because that's somewhere in my own profile I talk about having a penchant for being persistent and how persistence is always what it takes to kind of succeed at anything. And Mm -hmm. in this case, I think that's true of internet dating because you're going to get a lot of discouraging, asinine responses, Mm -hmm. things that you don't want to hear. I mean, if you believe what women often write in their profiles, (laughs) the inane, asinine, offensive things men say are are endemic. I think I've written at least one apology in a message in response to one of those things. Sorry for the genders. Oh, you apologize for the... Yeah, I apologize for the entire genders. Like, sorry about that. We're we're idiots. So, yeah, I think of them less as poetry and more as interesting little snapshots of a moment and then a way to hang this other set of ideas on in terms of the artwork. Mm-hmm. So. And do you, just from a literary point of view, try to get other things published? Do you submit to that kind of thing, too? I don't, okay. no. I consider myself a visual artist, even though I've been using text-based stuff almost exclusively for at least a decade. My background and my preference really is as a visual artist. Text just is the form it takes. Yeah, yeah. I like your style. What are you, some sort of a nut? Back with the dating profile, had you ever seen it from a woman's point of view? Have you ever looked at a woman's profile? I was always curious about that. It's like, I want to see this onslaught that they're getting of how men write their profiles. Mm -hmm. Because the one thing you notice when you read a lot of women's profiles you really see the things that everybody is saying, the exact same oh, thing. Yeah, you um, see the patterns, and then you see the extreme breaks in the patterns, mm-hmm. and then you see the people who are like, huh, that's different, and that's kind of interesting. Yeah, and that gets your attention. Yeah. Because you do see the same thing repeated. The cliches then become the things that many people complain about. The, yeah. I like walks on the beach and, and movies and theater, and you glaze over when you come across another one of those. Yeah, um, and men are doing the exact same oh, of thing. Oh, yeah. But like for me, I never had access to read. It's almost like you want to read that to be like, okay. (laughs) I had an idea. You you mentioned the storefront video projects Uh where I film storefronts around the city. I still do that, and I'm still trying to work on that. But one of the things that I wanted to do with those videos was use texts that I found or put together from Internet dating sites finding like the cliched things uh-huh. and then making the storefronts, the text in the storefronts repeat these phrases. It's proven to be more of a challenge than I've quite figured out yet in terms of making that happen. But in trying to do that, I did sign up with a fake profile as a female with the hopes of seeing what would happen in terms of how men would respond. I didn't follow through in it enough to actually end up getting any responses to yeah. it, so I don't really know. I think I lost interest in that end of it. But yeah. Um, Having done that, I had a profile yeah. that I could then access and look at men's profiles, and it really isn't a whole lot different than women's yeah. in terms of the same sort of repeated cliches and things that people say over and over again. Yeah. And it's those ones that don't repeat those that actually do get your, oh, that's interesting. Or the weird conceptual profiles where people are 
trying to be witty in some way, and they, they're not being useful in terms of talking about <laughs> right. themselves, perhaps, but it's an interesting conceptual piece of writing. Yeah, yeah. Someone yeah. posts uh, like a whole short story, and it's like, well, yeah. wait, what are you, are you trying to like promote your story, or are you just trying to break this pattern? Yeah. The one I liked is in New York City, you know, you put a certain mile radius, and you get people from New Jersey, obviously. Oh, yeah. And there was one woman who's like, I'm in New Jersey, but you said you like to travel. <laughs> you know, because everyone says, I like to travel. Yeah, everybody likes to but travel. It's like, well, <laughs> everybody has that picture of them at Machu Picchu or the complaints that like women say they won't respond to you if you have a picture of yourself with your shirt off right. or wearing sunglasses <laughs> right. or with a dead animal. Um, I mean, I'm looking obviously at, at a particular kind of women, probably. Right. There might be plenty of women <laughs> right. who like all of those things. And yeah. then you're looking at your profile and you're like, okay, I got the dead animal. <laughs> I got the... Yeah. I mean, a lot of those things, yeah, seem very obvious. But then there are other ones you're like, huh, I, I didn't even think of it that way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He got a snake skin sports shirt and it looks like Vincent Price with a little piece of chicken and his carbon on a slice. Someone tipped her off She'll be doing a Houdini now any day She shook his hustle A greyhound bustle Take the one and got away wow. One of the things I do find sort of fascinating In looking at those dating profiles Is how often you can come away From having read somebody's profile And have no idea What they do with their life Because they like kind of this similar set of things that everybody probably likes. Yeah. Everybody likes restaurants. Everybody likes travel. Everybody likes movies. Yeah. But you're probably a made-up person. You're right. Not, or you're just so boring. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> there really are a lot of those people out there. And I guess that's where you're just supposed to swipe in that not interested direction. Left. I've been fortunate the last couple of years in that I've been involved with people, and I haven't had to be on them lately. So I have a feeling I'll have a rude awakening if I return to the dating sites, because I have a feeling they've changed. Yeah. And the way people communicate has changed, and I'll have to relearn a whole new set of things if I have to go back there. Yeah. I lasted two months on OkCupid, uh -huh. and I I just felt marketed to the whole time. Yeah. And as I talked to people about it who were on it and have met people, they're like, that sounds really different from when I was there. Yeah. It's become more influenced by Tinder, and they try to control it a little bit more about how you can connect with people what you have access and some to, of that's what been some of that's been yeah. in response to, i think to a lot of what women have complained about yeah. being overwhelmed by fake stuff by offensive stuff by rude yeah. stuff yeah i mean one of the good things that they changed along those lines is that if you like someone mm -hmm. then you send them an intro message they immediately disappear from your profile oh really your message disappears uh-huh they're just gone uh-huh until they respond interesting that came out of women giving them feedback saying the same guy just oh, keeps just keeps messaging. Keeps, and you know, this goes back to when you were talking about persistence as a general good characteristic. In a way it is, but in another way, that kind of persistence Yeah, that's is, <laughs> that's a very different you know, thing. This is one thing I'm fascinated by. It's when people that are well known they say, just be persistent and you'll reach your goals. I think some people interpret that as this other kind of persistence of yes. just like if I just keep <laughs> you know, messaging this woman, she will eventually. I it's like, uh, thank, well, it's a thank different. Thank God, kind of I never. I always took the approach of you're one and done. Yeah, you send them one message, and if you yeah. don't receive a thing, let it go. There, there were one or two exceptions where I looked at what I wrote and I thought that was strange. Why did I? Yeah, and so I would do a follow up. Yeah, but it wasn't one of those like emailing them every 
day yeah. kind yeah. of thing. It was more like a, I thought my first message was really bad. I'm sorry. Here's a better message. Ignore right. that first message. Right. But I only did that a couple times. Right. Well, now the app sort of makes up that for that. It, yeah. it, and it's great. You know, that didn't work. Forget about it. Move on. <laughs> you know, I mean, in your case, you still have the message. And, you know, in my case, I write the intros in a Word document and yeah. then, you know, paste them in. So I have them, but it's like... <laughs> yeah, most people probably, they just, they're off yeah. the ether, they're gone. It's yeah. some aspect that only that company... Imagine the, the treasure trove of stuff well, that OkCupid has. That's the other reason I wanted to leave it. And also the frustration that I experience just from reading women's profiles and the kind of photos they provide and the kind of questions they answer. Yeah. It's like some people are really secretive about it in a sure. good way. You yeah, know, yeah. Pictures at the back of their head do, yeah. only yeah. because we're learning from these Cambridge Analytica whistleblowers. The information is the hottest commodity right now. Yeah. And something like OkCupid, with all these questions you answer, things like, if you're in the middle of the best sex you've ever had, would you squeal like a dolphin? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so there's all these questions that just create enough points like Cambridge Analytica. I think they said they had 5,000 points of identification for every person. Yeah. And I think something like OkCupid is, or any of these dating sites that you provide a profile and you answer these questions, yeah. you're giving them so much. Oh, yeah. And what you hope to get in return is one person to fall in love with, you know. Yeah, it's perhaps a, a price we don't really want to pay. Like we ever are under a more autocratic regime that would provide a huge treasure trove of things for them to use against you yeah. if they want it. That is scary. I always sort of jokingly say like, well, I'm not worried about sharing my information on all these sites because my life is so banal and so boring that it'll put <laughs> these people to sleep. Yeah. Well, I was watching this thing about Brittany Kaiser, who was the whistleblower for Cambridge Analytica. And she's talking about how they identify persuadables, mm. people who just by looking at this data they have, they say, we could persuade this person on this particular point. Yeah. Everyone thinks, yeah, I'm so boring. It's not going to happen. But advertisers do it then with the whole political thing. It's like, oh, yeah, we know you're going to react this way if we feed you this bit of information. Yeah. So. Well, what's interesting is to think about what the gap actually is between what those industries think they can figure out about you and what the reality yes. is. I've read that OkCupid in particular has worked with academics who take that information, you know, and they try to anonymize it to allow these academics to study things. Right. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing that they do on the side. Right. If they've at least stripped it of identifying stuff, is it objectionable? I guess you could make a case. But I'm kind of fascinated to think about how you could play with that gap between what people think they can figure out from that information and what the reality is. Yeah. Are you, in fact, persuadable on that particular point that we think you're persuadable on? Or are you totally not? You're totally convinced of the other thing. Right. In the same way that those left-hanging messages might mention something that that person said in their profile, but you don't have any access to it. So you don't know what the heck I'm talking right. about. Yeah. Um, and I kind of <laughs> like that sort of like, what is he... What does that mean? Yeah. And I love that sense of discombobulation that comes by stripping enough of context back to where you kind of know what it might mean, but you, yeah. you really won't ever know. Yeah. yeah, and I wonder if that feeds into email messages. You know, we've all had this experience where we've sent something 
and the recipient really misunderstood it. Yeah. Like getting humor across uh-huh. in an email. Or, or texting is the same way. Yeah, there's, like there's this is... sort of misunderstanding, and it's like, wait, what? And you, you offend someone really easily oh, yeah. or whatever. And it's all really context-based, too. Yeah. Like someone else reading that would be like, whoa, I don't know why you blew up at that. <laughs> yeah, well, and we all probably know somebody who we've learned we have to be more yeah. cautious with yeah. in how we communicate in a text form because either they'll misinterpret it or they focus on something that you don't expect they'll focus yeah. on. I mean, I know in certain email situations, I'll be that obnoxious guy that even though I want to say five things to you, I'll send it in five different emails because I don't want you to do that. You respond to the first thing right, right. and nothing else. Yeah, yeah, I think it plays back to that idea of we're wanting to talk to each other. We're all trying desperately to communicate the things that we want to communicate, but we are all so hopelessly bad at it. Or we go in and out of being bad at it. Even if we're good writers, you're rushed, you're busy, you're distracted, and then you don't have your tone of voice. There's so many levels in which it can be lost. Yeah. And that gap comes into play. And I love that gap. And we see it a lot on social media, Facebook. Oh, yeah. That's where I've witnessed the most blowouts. Yeah. You just sort of witness these things and you're like, oh, God, that really spiraled out of control yeah. somehow. And it's like someone's saying something based on what they're thinking and their personal experience and the context that they're in. And someone from a completely different context reading those exact same words but responding from a different background. And you could just watch this misunderstanding play out. Oh, yeah. And it either ends in frustration or a smiley face emoji saying, <laughs> I, I see what happened here. Yeah. yeah, I think I have never done a tweet in my life, but I get the impression that that is the land to go if you want to be misunderstood and you want to start arguments and have things escalate in ways that you didn't expect. And for that reason, I don't go there. It used to be Facebook. I've happened. certainly done it on Facebook, and I think that's yeah. one of the reasons that I don't post yeah. much there yeah. anymore either. I like Instagram. It's visual and just like something. You can make a comment to those who you know you're safe making comments to and yeah, or just look. Yeah, and also you can't repost links. That's part of the thing with Facebook. People aren't communicating anymore. They're just directing people to other links or other news reports. You got to see this. Yeah. But yeah, it's sort of the breakdown of communication. Yeah. That's your playground. It is. Yeah. I mean, and we live in a rich time in terms of (laughs) gaps between what people believe. Yeah. Or what people understand. It's the secret life of letters. The secret life of words. Where do they hide unspoken? Thanks. I think we jumped around. Yeah, a we lot did. You have to <laughs> and kind of wove everything together hopefully, in certain ways. Hopefully. See how it sounds on the other side. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Sure. This is David Colosi. I've been talking with Nicholas Frazier. If you haven't already, please check out his website at nicholasfraser.com. And I want to extend a special thank you to Brick, which, like many arts institutions, is struggling during this pandemic. Arts institutions and artists, like all of us, are going to need a lot to get us back up after this. 
museums, cultural centers, and community organizations under normal circumstances operate on budgets that barely keep their staffs floating. But they continue to give us fantastic programs and opportunities to participate in as both artists and audience members. They depend on us just as we depend on them to create environments for social closeness. So we're all going to have to create new ways to continue to keep them in the foundations of our communities. Thank you to everyone at Brick for taking care of Brooklyn. Thanks again for listening to the Napping Wizard Sessions. As always, tune in again for mm, something, something else. I still wake up at night screaming. 